Hello. Hey, everyone. Come on in. Take a seat. If you are in the coffee shop or outside, come inside the building. We have some seats open right in front. Right here. All right. There we go. Good job. All right. My name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church, which is where you are, in case you were unsure. That is where we are this morning. If you are new this morning, I want to welcome you. I want to make sure you know that there is information about our church in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, we also have an information booth out front. And so if you want to know more about what's happening here at the church, then please let us know. You can let us know, you know, face-to-face out front after service. We also have a newsletter. We have an app. We have a website, you know, all the good stuff. And so all of those things will give you information about the happenings going on at SBC. Uh, if you aren't familiar with our building, we have our cry room over here for babies, real ones and metaphorical ones. And we have a family room. See the families? Wave. There they are. Those are the young little babies that are they are not ready to drop off at our nursery yet. And our nursery is next door, um, as well as going through fifth grade. Um, and then after I announce all my amazing things, if you are in junior high, before I forget, you can go out front with Pastor Caleb after the video that I'm going to show this morning. All right? So those are all the informational tips about Sierra Bible Church. Also, you know, if you're someone that comes frequently, I don't want to forget about you either. So you're valuable too. You know, thank you for coming. I don't have any gifts for you or, or informational cards, but we value you as well. Those of you that are here, those of you that have come faithfully, I also want to thank everyone who gives uh, gives frequently. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, that gives to our church because, it, as, as you know, we had VBS last week. We had about 80 kids here in the building. And a lot of people come to VBS that are a part of SBC, but a lot of people come just from the community and then people that are here just for the summer. And we had people showing up with their kids, you know, maybe the full week or maybe just a day. And it was a pleasure for me to have them come and sign in and then say, you know, well, how much do we owe you? And I got to say nothing. It's a free program. It is the only free program for children in, tra in Truckee. It's the only one. <laughs> um, and so thank you for that. We had a good time last week. Um, and then coming up, if you don't know, we have our church, our annual church picnic. This is always the first Sunday of August, which is August 6th this year. It's at 1030 ignore the slide. It hasn't been updated. That's on me. Um, so it's at 1030. It makes it really easy because it's during, it's the same time as this service, our second service. So we invite you out, Donner Lake Pavilion, August 6, 1030. Bring a side dish, bring a dessert, but you don't have to bring a main course because we have all that good stuff. Um, and we are doing baptisms. And so if you're unfamiliar with baptism or if you're interested in knowing more, you can also register for that on our app and online, and we will get you connected with the pastor to give you more information. And if you still, if you are a visual person, then I have a video, and it's just going to suck you in. You're going to be so excited. Baptism, when we talk about baptism, and when we enter into the water, 
with baptism and proclaiming that baptism, what we're ultimately doing is communicating to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has lived the perfect life that we need necessary for salvation. That Jesus died the death that we rightly deserve. And that all of our sins were placed in the grave with Christ forever and ever and ever. Never to be brought in front of God's face again. Never to be thrown in your face again. It is a proclamation that Jesus is still alive. for the live version of that, uh, Robert will be there again. He was actually here first service, and he did a, his own special showing for that song afterwards. So um, please join us at, uh, at the picnic. It's always a good time. Let me just give you one word of advice. If you do come and you decide to partake in the games, stay far away from Pastor Caleb Dero. He has no brake pedal. <laughs> but he is uh, with your junior hires now. So if you're a junior hire and you haven't already gone and you want to go hang out with them, he's out on the deck. The rest of you, we get to continue our series in Ephesians today. So if you forgot your Bible or want to borrow one of ours, uh, raise your hand and we'll get somebody from the back to put a Bible in your hand. The rest of you, find whatever it is that you use. Hey, guys. Find whatever it is that you use to read the Bible and pull it out and open it up to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, my name is Brad Beers. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my uh, deep privilege to teach you God's Word today. We've got one more here. I'll throw mine at you if they don't make it to you. Okay. <laughs> here, take mine. Yeah, because he's going to walk to me before he walks to you. David, can I have one? <laughs> Look, see, yeah, okay, Frisbee golf. <laughs> okay, Ephesians chapter 4. So excited to continue this with you. Now that we uh, all have Bibles with us and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to invite you one more time to stand with me, a practice that we do as a church, because what we are about to read, because God is behind it, is more powerful than anything nuclear. This is God's word to you. I'm going to read it, chapter 4, 1 through 6 in the ESV. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Holy Spirit, you know that I have prepared words for these people, but they are useless words if you do not empower them. We need to hear from you in this moment. We need your filling. We need your strength. We need your message to us. Make this your word to your people 
so we can give you praise with the way that we live it out. Amen. You can be seated. The babies are stoked. (laughs) They're screaming their praises to the Lord. I love it. So as we... I had the opportunity also to speak last week and I gave a little bit longer of an introduction to try to ensure for you that you are getting used to the practice of when you come to a passage of scripture, if you want to understand it, you have to understand the flow of thought that leads up to it. My words only make sense if they have a context behind them. Same with Paul, that's how scripture works. So if you want to try to understand chapters one through three, Or you have to understand chapters 1 through 3 in order to understand the place that we're going to be reading in chapter 4. You know how I know this? Point 1, look at the second word in the ESV of verse 1. What do you see? What's the word? Therefore. It is an old classic joke in church from Bible teachers. I'm sure you've heard it before. But whenever in Scripture you see the word therefore... You should be trained to ask yourself, what's this there for? Thank you for the courtesy laugh, because it's really not that funny. But what the point is, is that if you see that word, you have to understand that the person writing it wants you to understand everything I'm about to write in light of everything I just said. The reason why this is important is that as we transition into chapter 4, We're transitioning from Paul telling us a lot of theological truth into a passage of scripture where he's going to guide us how we should act. Now, when I was young in the Lord, I'll tell you the truth, and maybe some of you are at this spot, the messages that were like telling me a bunch of theology stuff was kind of like, okay, cool, like I guess I'll catalog that in my, my file folder of information about Jesus stuff. Right? But what I really wanted was just somebody to tell me, but just tell me what to do. Tell me, tell me what it is you want me to do. Okay? And that was how I felt for a really long period of time. The problem is that if you decide to live your Christianity out, if you decide to follow Christ with a mindset of just like, I'm just here to do what it is that I'm supposed to do, you will live in prison. It will have no bars, but you will be in a spiritual prison. Because you cannot do enough. You can't. The beauty, though, is that Paul wrote this word, therefore, to indicate for you that you have to keep in mind chapters 1 through 3 before you get to chapter 4. And what he's been saying is that no matter who you are or where you came from, the same God and the Father of all peoples in the world has made a way for you to be a part of what he is doing in the world. And the walls that used to differentiate us have been torn down by the work of Christ on the cross by his grace. So now there is just one church. We are part of that one church. You who have given your life to Christ, we are part of that one church. And God is strengthening us and filling us with his presence. So inevitably, as I come into what Paul writes in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, you're going to hear me telling you things that you ought to do. And the message of Christianity is not against telling you to do things, but we are against telling you that you need to do them in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn your salvation, or even that you can just make somehow God happier with you if you just did the right things. Or somehow you could change your circumstances of what God has for the plan if you just did the right things. Don't do that. Don't do it to yourself. Don't pour it onto other people either. Now that being said, the therefore has a reason that it is therefore. And Paul is telling us that he's a prisoner of the Lord, according to verse 1. Now, we've already talked about that in prior weeks, so we'll, we'll jump past that. And that he gives us first 
a word. I'm going to, during this message, this is going to be a message where you'll hear me a little bit more likely point out Greek words. And it's because when I do this that I love finding the little nuggets that it enhances the meaning of the text for me. It shouldn't really change the overall meaning. The translators in general are doing a really good job of translating the text so that you can handle it. But one of the things I get to do is do a little bit more. Sometimes you've heard me say I get to do some mining, right? I've been down in the mine of this text, working with the original language, and it fills out the meaning. I found some diamonds, and I want to share them with you. So I'm going to pop them up on the screen every once in a while, just to try to enhance the meaning of the text for us. Paul tells us that in light of his being a prisoner for the Lord, in light of everything he's written in chapters 1 through 3, he's first going to tell us to walk worthily of the calling or to, walk, to worthily walk of the calling to which you were called is the most direct translation of how Paul writes it. Now, when we look at walk worthily of the calling to which you were called, we should ask ourselves the question, what's the calling that he's referring to, and what does it, ma- what does it mean for us to walk worthily of it? One of the things that we talk about a lot in the leadership of our church is our theology of God's calling. And one of the ways that you want to try to inform your understanding of words is to try to look at how Paul uses this word elsewhere. The first thing that he tells us before this word calling is he uses a Greek word that you might have heard a version of before. This thing is not my very best friend. It's going to do this throughout the, it did it for service too. I I apologize for it. Technology makes our life easier. I don't know if you've heard this. He's, he is going to talk about the fact that he, comes, he wants to come alongside and enhance us to this calling, because I guess I can't bring this slide up. He uses the word paracalo, where I come alongside. That's the same word that when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, same type of word. And, and what he's trying to do, oh, you, is that me or is that you guys doing that? Uh, let's just go back. I think it's kind of working. We'll try. Thanks for trying to accommodate for my weaknesses. As you all know, I have many. So Paul is saying, look, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to urge you towards something to walk worthily of the calling and to understand that calling, the word that he uses for calling. I would encourage you when you try to understand stuff, look at how else he uses the word. I'm going to put a list of scriptures up here, not that you have to memorize every single one. or I, I just want you to see... This is mostly a list of just how Paul uses that word, calling. The calling that he has for his people. That we are called according to his purpose. That his calling is irrevocable. That God called or chose the weak to shame the strong. When God called you or chose you, stay in the condition in which you were found. The hope of his calling, prize the upward call, etc., etc., etc. The reason why I'm listing these out for you is that what I found as I looked at how Paul used this specific word is that the calling to which he's calling us to walk worthily is best understood as the heavenly invitation to unite with God as our souls were meant to exist. You were meant to exist in unity with the God of the universe and he has called or invited you back to him. So now that we know what the calling is, we start asking ourselves, what does it mean to actually walk worthily of that calling? (sighs) What does it mean to walk worthily? And I'm going to jump straight to the meat at this point. Because there is an essential point that what Paul points out from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is that to Paul and ultimately to God, responding to God's invitation, his calling to dwell and reign with him means to devote yourself to the health of the church. That's essentially what Paul is going to start arguing for the rest of chapter 4. Now, the moment that you start to hear that, that Paul's Paul is telling you that a worthy walk of your calling is to devote yourself to the health of a church. If you're a critical thinker and you've been around, you might realize that that sounds a little bit different. How, how does that like play out in terms of evangelism or, or reaching the rest of the church? If we become inward focused, how do we reach the church? Now, I'm sorry, how do we reach the world? 
How do we reach the world? What was Paul's job at this point? Try not to get distracted by that little post-pubescent voice crack. (laughs) Just go ahead and call that out. (laughs) Paul was in prison because he was doing what? He was evangelizing the world. And he was going places and teaching them about Jesus, and it was causing problems for those places. And so Paul was thrown in prison. When Paul tells you, I want you to be devoted to the health of the church, he's doing it with a life that has been dedicated to evangelism. These are not two separate ideas. Instead, let me try to reconcile them together. The best way to support those who have been evangelized, those who have been told of God's calling, those who have received the invitation and they've responded with their faith, the best way to support those who have been evangelized is to facilitate for them a church home that provides for them the rest and the care that they cannot get from the world. The best way to support the people that have been evangelized is for making them a church home where they can feel rest and care. That's why Paul's essential point is that to walk worthy of the calling is to be devoted to the health of the church. And he's going to unpack that in two specific ways. This is, remember last week, if you were here, I told you that the general good idea of how to teach something is to tell people what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. This is what I'm about to tell you, okay? I'm going to tell you this, that the way to be devoted to the health of the church is to be one, people of patient love. Two, to be fervent about oneness. That's what these six verses are going to teach us, that we need to be people of patient love and people who are fervent about oneness. Let's unpack what these things mean. Okay? So to be people of patient love. The first words here in verse 2. I don't want you to skip over them. With all. Did you notice that? With all. And it's the dire- that's a direct translation. That's the best way to translate the Greek words. With all. Don't skip over them. Realize that in Christ, what he calls you to, he will empower you to do. This isn't just a sometimes call. This isn't just a call for you to act towards certain people a certain way who might just need it every once in a while. We are responding the way that these verses describe all the time to all the people with all. Asking God to work his love through us with all people. Praying constantly for his kingdom resources to flow out of us to all people. And then Paul gives some practical instruction of what that would look like. And he starts using these words that I want to try to define for you and draw hopefully some bigger word pictures. With all, the first one translated in the ESV is humility. This is the hardest one for me to put into English letters and then say it without stumbling over my words but it's something to the effect of tapenafrasunes. Yeah, see, you, you laugh and that's fine. Uh, that word is an interesting word because what Paul is doing is he's taking, the, he's making an antonym of a word that was very popular in Greco-Roman culture. With Greece being kind of the, the hotbed of world philosophy, especially Western philosophy, it was... Something to be known as a person with a high mind. Paul takes that word and flips it on its head and says, Christians, if you are to be devoted to the life of the church, it will start with you being lowly of mind. And this word almost takes on an idea of a self-abasing type of thought. That if we are to be devoted to the life of the church and to make it healthy, we have to start the action with a proper self-view. So let me tell you something that might be a little bit different than you've heard before. You're not that special. Now, time out. 
if you are at this like specific place in your life where you have struggled with your own self-worth and, and you're like, you really can't see how God could even love you and you are in this miserable place, close your ears for about 90 seconds. I'll be right back with you, okay? Because that's a real thing and I don't mean to minimize it. Some people, they need to hear the opposite side of this. But for the rest of us, we're not that special. Like, I, I know that we're told a lot of the times that we're supposed to have this, like, strong sense of self-esteem. And unfortunately, what it has pretty much manifested in, for most people, is as you walk through life, you are a king or a queen of your own little kingdom. Have you noticed this before? Where, like, if, if somebody was making a movie, just a movie in general, the hero of that movie, it would be you. That's how we think of it. That's how I think of myself often, right? If the cameras were following somebody, it would be me. And I have a tendency to think about my life in this way. So when I'm inconvenienced by somebody, how dare they step into my story and mess, up, mess it all up for me, right? It's more than just an inconvenience. They're, they're, they're an obstacle that gets in the way of how my movie is being shown to the world. And you can see that if all of us are all kind of thinking that way, it becomes very difficult for us to interact effectively because we're all secondary characters in everyone else's movie. What Paul is trying to tell us is that if we are going to devote ourselves to the health of the church and being people of patient love, we have to start with a realistic view of ourself. We are only special because of God's love for us. He has made you special. He has endowed you with a specific purpose in the kingdom of God that, yes, is entirely unique, but if it wasn't for his work you would be part of no story, at least not a positive part of the story. When Paul calls us to humility, he, he does this type of thing in other places other than just Ephesians. Like maybe if you grew up um, in Awana like I did, you memorize what's referred to as the kenosis passage that's in Philippians 2. And in Philippians 2, Paul is trying to teach the Philippians to have a mind to think of themselves in the same way that Christ thought about people. So when he writes Philippians 2, he says, with humility, same word, with humility, consider others as what? I don't know if you don't want to say it out loud because you don't want to believe it or if you're just unsure of what the verse is. Scream it loud for the people in the back. As more important than yourself. It's worth saying loudly because I need to hear that every single day. With humility, if I am to have the mind of Christ, I am to be living in such a way to consider others as more important than myself. Now, when Paul tells us to try to think of ourselves correctly this way, this doesn't mean to swing the pendulum so far and instead to be thinking untrue things about ourselves. Many of us in this room are good at things. Some of you are really strong. Some of you, if you're willing to admit it, are very attractive. Some of you are really friendly. Some of you make a lot of money. Some of you are just really good at chess. I don't know. You're good at stuff. And when God says, I want you to be humble, what he's not saying is that you have to somehow not be what he's made you to be. The reason I know this is because of the next word that he uses next to humility. He uses the word prautetas. Now that word is translated in, your, in most English texts as, humil, as, uh, I'm sorry, as gentleness. I'm not a big fan of translating it as gentleness. A better way to translate it would be the word meekness. Now most English translators don't use that word because meekness has kind of fallen from use in our society. 
when you hear the idea of meekness, you probably don't necessarily know precisely what it means. Let me tell you what meekness looks like. There was a guy a few minutes ago that was standing right here playing this guitar. Do you know him? He has a fantastic name. It's Brad Knoll. He is our pastor of worship and outreach. Brad Knoll is the closest thing you will ever meet in real life to Maui from Moana. Without exaggeration, I would be willing to bet money that Brad Knoll is probably the strongest person in our church. The reason why I would say that is I got a little bit of an opportunity to taste it one time. Brad and I actually live pretty close to one another, and he asked me one time to come help him because he was building his deck by himself, mind you, with his own bare hands, and asked me to come help him move the beams that would be the undergirding of the deck. If you know anything about construction, you know these are the biggest parts. He asked me to come help him move the beams from his front yard to his backyard. At that point, I was about 20 pounds heavier. I'd been lifting weights a lot. I'm like, I, I could probably provide some type of assistance. So I go over to his house, and he's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick it up. We're going to take it over here, and if you need to take any breaks, you just let me know. I'm like, okay. So, you know, I, I do everything right. I, I lift it correctly. I got both hands underneath, and I'm like, whoa, as I pick it up. I do pick it up, mind you. That's right. <laughs> I look over at Brad, and he's got it under one arm. He's like, all right, so you're good? You're good? <laughs> And we're backing up. He's backing up, walking backwards, carrying it that way. And I'm going, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And we need to take a break because I wasn't good. And we put it down and we rest. And then, he's, and then when I'm like, okay, I'm good enough, he literally just bends over, picks it up. Like the total wrong way to pick up anything heavy. Picks it up, puts it back in place. I would be willing to bet that Brad Knoll is the strongest man in our church. Not just because he was stronger than me in that moment. But think about it this way. Have any of you that known him ever felt physically threatened by him? Have you ever had a moment with Brad Knoll where you thought, this dude could pound me into the dirt if he wanted to? You've never thought that. That, my friends, is meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power properly restrained so that it can be helpful to others. When Paul calls us to humility, he doesn't call us to be something different than what we are. He calls us to embrace our strengths, but to put proper checks and balances on them such that our strengths are not used to somehow become our identity, but instead are used to be beneficial to the rest of the church. That's meekness. It's not ignoring your power. It's restraining it to a level helpful for others. So Paul then tells us, after these two descriptions that will be necessary for us to be beneficial with one another, he then uses two words to warn us for what it is that he might actually, what we will really experience when we go through it. He says, first, with, and then the Greek word is makrothumeia, which your English text probably translates it as patience or something along those lines. But if you're familiar with words at all, you might recognize the prefix macro which means it's the opposite of micro, right? Macro is huge, long-suffering. This is not just quick patience. This is long-term patience. And he then uses the verb echo that you will need to not just bear with one another, as some of the texts say, but you will need to even get to the level of tolerating one another and enduring one another is what that word means. Paul is warning us for the reality that he knows that the people that we interact with will not deserve our patience. They will test it. They will try it. You will lose your cool with them. 
We're going to have to do this way more often than just one time or two time with people. People will require our long-suffering. And the truth is, they will require long-suffering also for dealing with you. They will even at times need to tolerate you. Yes, I know, even you, the hero of your own movie. They will need to tolerate you. But this is done, look at the end of verse 2, it is done with one another in love. If you've been around the church long enough, you've probably heard somebody explain to you the agape kind of love that is referenced here. The type of love that doesn't worry about what, how I feel. It doesn't worry about what I can get out of this relationship. It is a self-sacrificial kind of love that just like he's just described in humility is considering your needs as more important than mine. And to do it over and over and over again. Now, the temptation as a speaker sometimes when you're teaching the Bible is to, is to tell you, hey, this is what God wants you to do. Now go do it. And it's a little bit unfair because I, at least I feel like sometimes when I'm, when I'm in your shoes going, how am I supposed to do that? Like you're, that sounds like a nice idea, but what would it really look like for me to try to do that this week? So I have developed Brad Beer's seven-step process to being people of patient love. I mean, in all seriousness, I think this is what the process looks like. First, begin each of your days asking God to live this out through you in his power. Remember, this is his mission for the world. This is his mission through you. You don't have to do this in your own power. You're doing it in his power. So ask him to do it through you. Next, as you encounter people, see them not as obstacles or secondary characters in your story. That person who's checking you out at the grocery store for 90 seconds, they mean something to God. They're not just the person that scans your kiwis. They're meaningful. That person in this room that hurt you, they're not an obstacle for you. They weren't an obstacle to God. And instead, we see them not as these secondary characters that are obstacles, but instead we pray to have God's eyes for these people, to see them the way that God sees them in the value that they have. Remember, that is what makes them special, what God's plan is for that person. As they inevitably drive you nuts, it will happen. Pray for them and yourself. Those things that you've prayed for God to let you see in this person, pray those things for them. And while you pray, remember how much God has been patient with you. He has tolerated you doing the same problem over and over and over again. And I know this because that's what he's done with me and still does to this day. Finally, for those of you, for those of you, that was my New York accent. You like that? <laughs> for those of you that need to have a little bit of grace for yourself, remember, you're going to fail at this. You are going to fail. Moms, you're going to yell at your kids. I know you baby moms, you couldn't see that as ever a possibility. I get it. I get it. They're precious. You never will. For the rest of us that live in a reality, <laughs> we know that we have and will. You know one of the things that I learned about being a parent? And I, and I say I've learned. I'm, I'm continuously learning this. My kids don't need me to be a perfect person. They need to know what it looks like to resolve conflict because that's what the world doesn't seem to be able to teach them. So when I lose it with my kids, the call of Christ isn't for me to be perfect. The call of Christ is for me to ask for forgiveness even from my own kids. I'm sorry. 
man, I mean, you were wrong on that, but the way that I reacted was completely out of line with what I wanted to do with you. I'm sorry, and I want to treat you better. Can you forgive me? That teaches our kids how to do that with the people in their own lives. That's what they need. You can do that with God as well. Ask for forgiveness when you fail. The last step, which isn't really much more than just a little cherry on the top, is realize that you're going to need to do it over and over and over again. But the beauty is that you will do it in God's mercy. You will do it in his mercy. As we've looked at this text so far, we know that we want to be people of patient love. That's what Paul calls us to. But as we look at the next thing, we realize that Paul wants us to express this patient love in a specific way, that we want to be fervent for oneness. Now, I don't need to spend as much time of the message today unpacking this because Paul makes this explicitly clear. In the next four verses of this text, he uses the word one or oneness or some version of it eight different times. The oneness that he wants you to see, we need to be eager for it or fervent for it. The word that he uses at the beginning of verse three, eager, or it's the Greek word spudadzo, which means speedily zealous, that you rush to the job of maintaining oneness. Be eager and quick to keep the oneness of the Spirit by the, bo- uh, by the bond of peace. Being people that instead uh, are those that are quick to call someone out or to tell them what it is that they need to fix. That we are quick and eager and zealous to explore how we can maintain our oneness with that person. If we will practice this, we start to realize why it is that Jesus prioritized this oneness. Remember in the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those, or happy are those, or people that are well off are those who are peacemakers. For they are called, and I wrote it on the board for you to be able to see, they are called sons of God. The children of God are peacemakers. We are eager to maintain oneness. And one of the things that you notice when you're realizing that this keeping or this maintaining of oneness is Paul isn't saying that we are falsely concocting this oneness, that we have to make up the oneness, that instead this is the oneness that he has just talked about, chapters one through three, that God made the oneness for us through the work of Christ. Our call isn't to try to make it happen. Our job is to maintain it because it already has been done. The oneness already has been extended to you. It is now your job to try to maintain it through God's power. And he drives this home through a series of ones. A series of ones. If we look at verse 4, we see three, our first three ones. One body. One spirit. And one hope. We see that when Jesus came and made his church, and I talked about this last week, when Jesus came and made his church, he didn't make multiple churches. He made one capital C church. Yes, it may have various manifestations and various meeting groups just for the help of geographical location, but Jesus doesn't see it as lots of different churches. In Jesus, it is one church, and he refers to it as his one body with many parts, an idea that will get unpacked further next week as we continue in Ephesians. There is one body. There is one spirit. You'll notice in the text, it's probably capital S. There are not multiple Holy Spirits. There is one Holy Spirit that is working in and among the body of Christ. And as, it is because of that that we have only one hope. That we've been called, we have that one hope of our calling. Only through Jesus will we be restored to God. Remember, in Jesus... He taught himself about himself, John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life and how many people come to the Father outside of him. Zero people. None people. No people come to the Father except 
through the one hope of Jesus, which is why in verse 5, Paul then moves on to say that there is one clicker. There is one Lord. Jesus is commonly referred to in Paul's writing as Lord. There is just the one Jesus, the one Jesus alone. And because it is just through him, there is only one faith. Putting faith in anyone other than Jesus to restore our relationship with the Father leads nowhere. And because of this, there is one baptism, just one moment where we proclaim our death in Christ and our resurrection in him. You don't need to be baptized multiple times, as was accidentally said from the stage by someone else last week. If you want to get baptized eight times in a row, you don't need to do that. Good news. One time is enough. One declaration to be baptized before God's people saying that I have died in Christ. And like Paul says in Galatians 2, that I'm no longer living for myself, but I'm living by identifying with Christ's work in me. All of this is extended to us from, makes our life easier, from one God. I pointed this out when we t- I, I talked about it last week. This one God who is father of all, Paul repeats himself of what he said in, verse, or in chapter three, that this one God is the creator of all, but he permeates all things. Look at the way that Paul describes him, the father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is no place from which God is absent. There are no secrets hidden from God. And for those of you feeling it, there is no abandonment from this God. He is of all and over all and through all and in all. We are a people who are of patient love and fervent for oneness because we realize what's at stake. I'm going to invite the band to come back up as we prepare to respond in music. But I also, as they're coming up, I want you to turn to another passage in Scripture because though I don't like, you know, jumping around too much in the text, I do want you to see this as it comes to our fervency for oneness. Go over to John chapter 17. And as you look at John 17, what you will find in John 17 is that Jesus actually prays for Sierra Bible Church. Did you know that? Jesus actually prays for Sierra Bible Church, and it's recorded in Scripture. If you go to John chapter 17, look at this. Starting in verse 20, Jesus is praying, and he says, I don't ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, the apostles' word. Jesus is praying directly for our church. This church came to understand the message of Jesus as it was extended through the apostles and came through history to what became what is now Sierra Bible Church. Jesus is praying for us directly. What is he praying? Verse 21, that they may all be what? One that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He's praying for our oneness because he wants us to look like him, number one, but two, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world will validate Jesus by looking at our oneness. If you want to have an experience where you help somebody reject Jesus, let me tell you the fastest way to do it. Treat other people in this room like garbage. There are probably people in this room who have had an experience where the church has hurt you in some way. And the best that I can probably respond is to say, I'm, I'm sorry, but it, we weren't supposed to do that to you. The way that the world knows that Jesus is who he said he is, is by our oneness with one another, which is why we must 
Be fervent for it. People of patient love that are fervent for oneness. This is why you'll, you'll hear regularly from the stage that there's too much at stake for a church to keep tearing itself apart over petty doctrinal issues or individual priorities. This is why you will never hear from this stage at Sierra Bible Church, at least as long as I'm here, to try to help with the process. And I know Jesse is with me on this. The SBC will never place itself as a priority of other churches in this town, in this region, in the state. If they are a church that ascribe to this same ones that we've just talked about, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope in Jesus, then we are one with them. And we want to see them succeed in their efforts to display Jesus, to disciple people. We are one with them. That was a oneness that was made by Christ. And it's our job to maintain it. So this week, as you try to walk worthily of the calling that God has placed upon you, walk worthily by being a person of patient love and diligently embrace your oneness with Jesus' church. God, I realize that we need your power to be the very things that you call us to be, and so I pray it over these people. I pray it over myself. May your love love through me this week. May your oneness be my priority. May I reflect my sonship in you by being a peacemaker. God, fill this church with people who are fervent for seeing the lost have a place where it is home, a place of rest and care. We will give you the glory for what you have done because we know it is in your power that we do it. Amen. You're welcome to stand. You're welcome to stay seated wherever you feel like you want to be at this moment as we declare God's love for us.